All right, and so that is, is the topic for today is greed and generosity. And so God's generosity colors everything that we do and even the reason that we're here today. And so that's where we're going to center on and we're going to seek his wisdom in that. And so when I say greed and generosity, your gut reaction is probably, okay, greed is bad, generosity is good. I think I've got it. So we can go home and we can, we can celebrate that truth. And that is true. You would be right. Uh, but it is much deeper than that. See, both greed and, and generosity depend on faith. Uh, what, it, what it shows us is what we believe about God determines what we're going to do with our money. And so if we believe that this world is all there is and that uh, I, I should be greedy and I should hoard whatever I can, then we're, I'm going to keep my treasure here on this earth. If I keep my treasure here on this earth, that's where moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal. But if I believe that there is an eternity and there is a God who has purposes for us that last for eternity, then I'm going to be more willing to send that money and store my money there in heaven and uh, where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot even touch, let alone break in and steal. And so it comes down to faith. And so the question before us today is, where are we putting our treasure? Where are we putting our treasure? So before we dive into the wisdom regarding greed and generosity in the book of Proverbs, we should confront some assumptions that we have about money. And so I have some questions that I think will start to draw out some of these assumptions that I think we all have. Uh, and I think it's important to just confront those. And so one of the questions is, are you rich or poor? Okay. And then another question is, if I am rich, am I then greedy by default? Or if I'm poor, am I exempted from generosity? And so let's start with the first one. Am I rich or am I poor? And so it's common for us to think of this in comparative terms. If the people around us, our neighbors, our family, our coworkers, if we engage in a lot of media and see, see folks on the news or celebrities, then we're going to compare ourselves to them. And so if they're wealthier than we are, we're going to think, okay, well, that means that I'm poor or I'm, I'm less than them. I'm lower, I'm lower class. Or conversely, it can work the other way, but typically it doesn't. Typically we think of ourselves as, as poor. We're looking up uh, to the others, but it, it certainly can happen the other way. Now the Bible doesn't give us a threshold of wealth that says if you, if you exceed this threshold, now you've gotten to the point of now you're rich. And then if you're under here, now you're poor. So it doesn't give us that, so I don't think we should land on a number. But I will share with you uh, a couple of the reasons why when I read in the scriptures the warnings about the snares of wealth, the snares of riches, uh, that I personally take an immense amount of heed. And so, um, so who knows the, the federal poverty line in America today for individuals? Close, $13,580 for 2022. It's for individuals, it's a little bit higher for, for families. So that's the federal poverty line. So if you made just that in a year, then you would be in the bottom quarter, perhaps less, of Americans if you made just that as an individual. But if you look at it from across the world and you compare that to all, all the people in the world, 
you would actually be in the top third, the top 30% of individuals in terms of wealth. That's the federal poverty line. We would determine it as the federal poverty line. If you increase that to $15 an hour, you might have heard that thrown around. Uh, some politicians have termed that as a living wage. Comes to about 31,000 and some change a year. $15 an hour if you're working 40 hours a week. Uh, then you jump into the top half of wealth in the United States, of income in the United States. But you rock it up to the top 12% in the world at $15 an hour. And so that, that gives us some perspective. And so it's a, it's a snapshot, so take it for what it is. But I think it is at least revealing. We're so immersed from a cultural viewpoint uh, that we don't realize the wealth that we actually have and the opportunities around us. Uh, for example, if you only earn $25,000 a year, which is about what I made coming out of college, and you never get a, a raise, you just make that consistently for 40 years, you will have a million dollars pass through your hands. So that's a small fortune. Consider also the, the time period that, that we're in. So this is another perspective. And so uh, who, who here has a cell phone? Okay, good. I, I was actually expecting a lot less participation in that. So I had a joke, so I won't, won't share it. Um, so yeah, most of you have a, a cell phone, if not all of you. Okay, keep your hands raised, the ones that said they have a cell phone. How many of those are a smartphone? Okay, yeah, so basically all of you. And so now who would say that's an essential device? Okay, yeah, <laughs> Joe knows you in the back. Yeah, they're, they're, they're being honest. Yeah, so, so I think many of us in our hearts, that's why we have it. We would say it's essential. We wouldn't want to give it up. However, cell phones were invented in, in 1973, and the smartphone was invented in 1994. So was it essential before that time? Obviously, a lot of things have changed. and There's a lot of other dependencies. So again, take that for what it is. But in King Solomon's day, he'd never heard of a device like this. If he had to send a message somewhere, he had to send a messenger, a person, to carry that message to take it somewhere. And you can go down the line of any other invention, airplanes, cars, indoor plumbing, heat, electricity, fast food, food delivery, glasses, advanced healthcare, and on and on and on. All of these things that we have around us that are now very accessible and very affordable. And so I bring these up to, to garner some perspective. I know that there are real needs here and that, that there are people in the, in the church, even this church, that are struggling financially. So I'm not minimizing that. But the, the point is that God has blessed us. He has placed us in a time and place and in a prosperous nation where there is an abundance and that there is attainable and cheap resources that just weren't dreamed of historically. So what we should do as a church today is remove those, that cultural perspective of wealth and adopt a biblical one. Where are we storing however much or however little God has given us? Regardless of how we categorize ourselves, our inclination should always be towards generosity. As we will see, you're not exempted if you're poor and away from greed. As we will also see, everyone is, can be tempted towards towards greed. That's why the book of Proverbs is so helpful for us. Now we'll get into our verses in Proverbs. So it's in chapter 11. It'll be on the, the screen here in a minute or two. 
um, but you can flip to your Bibles. Proverbs is about in the middle of the book if you're, you're flipping through after the Psalms. Uh, you'll find it. So it's in chapter 11 and verses 24 through 26. So it's, it's on the screen now. So I'll read those for you. Pastor Charles read those as well in the NIV, which I really liked uh, the, uh, the translation there that was helpful because it, it clarifies even more. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withhold, withholds what he should give and only suffers want. As Pastor Charles said, uh, comes to poverty. That was in the NIV there. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back rain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. And so we're going to focus on, on defining or understanding generosity, and then we'll go over to greed. And so generosity, where, where do you see generosity in that passage? Yeah, the one that's that's giving freely. So there's this this free will will giving. Uh, as I was researching this, the ten other times that I saw it used in scripture in the Old Testament, it was often translated as scattered, such as a scattering of the Lord's enemies or a scattering and uh, dispersion of the of the Lord's people. Psalm one forty seven sixteen uses it this way: He gives snow like wool; he scatters frost like ashes. So there's a, a blanket covering. So the, the freely giving of your money is not this budgeted, line item, targeted offering, at least not in this passage. This verse refers to as a blanket, carefree release given to bless others. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 3 through 4, he gives uh, some clarity here, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So there's some examples of generosity in the Bible that help to, to showcase this. And, and one example here is probably the most prominent one, the poor widow in Mark 12. So there's this, this poor widow that uh, the context here is Jesus is watching people give an offering to the temple in the offering bin. He's witnessing these people come through. And many people were giving uh, what he says out of their abundance. And yet, here's this poor widow that gives these two copper coins. They amounted to a penny. And so Jesus calls over his, his disciples and says, look here at this, at this woman. These others are giving out of their abundance, but she is giving everything that she has to live on. And so she's trusting God. She's trusting God as, uh, as Jesus says in, in Matthew 6, uh, that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these other things will be added to you. So she is showing that faith there, and he's exalting her as, a, as an example. And this is a dagger to the heart of us who may think that, oh, well, I'm too poor to be generous, too poor to give. Uh, she shows otherwise. The Macedonians are another example here. Um, they're found in 1 Corinthians. Uh, so this is a, a church, the Church of Macedonia, that Paul is exalting here and sharing as an example with the Corinthians. So he's trying to encourage the Corinthian church to give to the needy in Jerusalem. So the, the Jerusalem church is suffering. There, there's a lot of persecution happening and, uh, and people are poor there and they're, they're in need of support. So he's trying to encourage the Corinthians and he uh, shows the Macedonians uh, who were giving out of their extreme poverty to assist the church in Jerusalem. 
In fact, Paul phrased it this way, that they were begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So as we're thinking about where we're storing our treasure, are we begging earnestly to be able to take part in storing up that treasure for eternity and giving uh, to those in need? And then finally, the, the third point here is that a generosity is built in the Mosaic Law. So that for those of you that are unfamiliar, there's two covenants in the Bible. There's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant uh, is also termed as, as the Mosaic Law. And this is a list of laws and rules and guidelines that God had given to the Israelites of how they are to live. And one of those, uh, one of those guidelines was that the Israelites were not expected and commanded not to glean all of their fields. So if they have a field of wheat or a field of uh, grapes... They weren't expected to go and and just scrape everything. They were to leave the edges. And the reason why they were to leave the edges and not go through a second time is for the poor to come through and the foreigners in the society to come through and have something to eat. And this is a secondary point, but I I think it is notable that the the poor and the foreigners were expected to work to get that uh, to get that that food, they weren't just given the food that wasn't gathered and then and then distributed to them. No, they were called to come over and uh, take the the grapes and the grain, and uh, that was part of the commandment from God. And so, this is actually displayed in the book of Ruth uh, with Boaz. And so, uh, I won't get into the whole story, but but Ruth is an ancestor of Jesus. She's in the, she's in the line. She and Boaz are in the line. Of Christ, which is which is amazing, but she is a Moabite, a foreigner, and a widow, and she's poor, and so she comes to Boaz's field, and Boaz is obeying this law and giving generously, not gleaning the entirety of the field, and so she's able to come and and uh, and pick from from the grain there. There's other examples of his generosity in in the book of Ruth that you can read later, but that's another example. All right, so let's let's get into tithing. And so this is connected to generosity. This message is not uh, meant to be exhaustive about tithing, but I want to give some references in the book of Proverbs that provide some clarity. And so this is in Proverbs 3, verses 9 through 10. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And so for those of you who are unfamiliar of what a tithe is, so this is again going back to the Mosaic Law, it was a commandment to give 10% or the first fruits of, uh, of your produce, of your crops, of your income to the Lord. Uh, and, and actually in the Mosaic Law, it was more than 10%, it was closer to 23%, but a tithe literally means a tenth. And so, um, so I bring that up today because giving to the local church is a component of generosity that honors the Lord. As New Testament Christians, we are, of course, not bound by the Old, Old Testament Mosaic Law. And praise God for that. We're saved by grace, not by works of the law. I know that if I was held to account for my generosity and tithing alone, I would be condemned. But through the blood of Christ, I am not, and so I am free from, from that requirement. Uh, Yes, hallelujah, amen, praise God. We are under the law of grace. And so for us, some of us, that can, that can become a bit of a pitfall in our generosity. We think, okay, well now I'm, I'm free, I'm under the law of grace, I'm not under the law, I can give however much I want, and that would produce an abundance of generosity. And so that's what I thought, combining that with not letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing, 
I decided one year, years ago, to uh, just give freely that way and not, not have any number in mind, but just give freely to, uh, to this body. And so um, at the end of the year, I remember texting or emailing Pastor Cleet to see how much I had given, thinking it would be this, this great amount, and I was disappointed at the result. I don't remember the exact number, but it was less than 5%. So my free will grace giving was less than even the Old Testament requirement uh, that, that the Israelites were under that should be a lesser covenant than the covenant that we have with Christ under grace. So I was convicted. Uh, I cut a check at the end of the year to make up the difference and just committed to have that as as my floor, uh, 10% as the floor. And so um, that's just my experience as an experiment that I did. I don't know where all of you are at, but I, I would encourage you to consider uh, that as, as an option. Um, John Piper, who's a, a pastor, former pastor in Minnesota, um, he gives some some helpful clarity here. He says that I would say we should value our riches in Christ in this new covenant relationship so highly and our freedom from sin so highly and our gospel so highly that we would simply love to give. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is from Acts 20, 20 uh, 35. And we would be free from a love of things and a dependence on things and we would outgive those who lived under the law because we have a better covenant and a better promise. Everything is greater with Christ. Why wouldn't giving be greater? All right, so let's go back to the passage there to uh, see what it says about greed. So where do you see greed in this passage? Yeah, the withholding. Yeah, it's the withholding of grain. So you have something in your possession, uh, even when there's a need and you withhold it. Uh, so there's there's a bit of a, a stinginess here. Um, and as I was researching this, there's a lot of correlation with covetousness. And so it's a, it's a coveting heart uh, that, that wants to hoard and keep things for ourselves, uh, not for others, even when there is an expressed need. Uh, and, and, and even when it is not just a free will offering, as you can see in verse 26, it talks about selling the grain. So this person is hoarding the grain even when uh, he has the opportunity to sell it, and in selling it would bless others, but even then he's still hoarding it. So you see that that coveting, uh, stingy heart that's happening. So again, I think we can take Jesus' words for guidance here. So this is in Luke twelve fifteen. He says, watch out, be on guard against all forms of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So the, the prominent example here of greed is Ananias and Sapphira. Who's familiar with that story in, in Acts 5? Okay. So just to give you guys the context for those of you who are not familiar, so uh, this, is the new, this is the New Testament church. So this is after Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He's appeared to hundreds of people. And then he's ascended to the Father, and he's given the Holy Spirit that has fallen on the disciples. And so they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues, doing this, these healings, proclaiming boldly, and the church is growing. And so part of the church is a lot of needy people. And so the, the people there, the believers there, are so overwhelmed with generosity that they're selling the things that they have. They're selling their fields and laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet to be able to distribute and ensure that, that anyone that has a need 
is uh, supported and supplied with. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they conspire together to sell some property, but then they hold back part of the proceeds and pretend like the, the remainder is the full amount that they sold their property for. So they're trying to get the benefits of generosity in front of the people to say, oh yeah, look at us, we're, we're selling all this stuff, we're like everyone else, while covenant in their heart and, and keeping and hoarding and withholding uh, uh, the, the full amount. And so you can read about it in Acts, Acts 5, but the end result is that they, they die immediately. They are immediately judged by God uh, as Peter says, they're lying to the Holy Spirit. There's other examples here uh, in, in the scriptures that I won't go, go into, but um, uh, but the, the end result for those is, is condemnation. It's condemnation for greed. God looks very harshly uh, at this sin. It's not merely a hindrance to a godly life that will lead to temporal misery, but is a wicked sin that will lead to eternal damnation. Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, or the covetous is another, another way it's translated, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is a deep and abiding sin because it, it affects and corrodes the heart. And I, I do want to say, I don't have this in my notes, but uh, Paul does continue in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And so if you are here and you're gripped with greed or covetous or hoarding of, of your money and that is your idol or any of the other sins that Paul had listed and that is your idol. You are not worshiping God truly and not giving God what, what he deserves. You're just gripped by sin. You can have the truth of the second part of that passage. You can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be justified by the Lord Jesus by repenting of that sin and you can receive an inheritance of the kingdom of God. The only requirement from you is that you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus and you believe in faith that he took that sin on his back on the cross and paid in full for it, and that by rising from the dead, you can be saved because that payment was paid in full. So now you have his righteousness, he has your sin, and you get to be with him in glory forever. If that's you, then please come talk to me or one of the pastors uh, after the service uh, because that, that is what God wants for you. That is the purpose for your life is that you would repent and you would glorify him forever and have an inheritance with him forever. Uh, one other note here on, on greed that I just want to comment on with, with tithing. Uh, and um, and this is particularly for the pastors. Uh, it does say in the scripture that um, that ministers of the word are not to be peddlers of God God's word. And so, what does that mean? It means people that are using God's word uh, in a way to to make a gain for themselves. 
So this is most prominently displayed in prosperity gospel where they are uh, exalting a lesser form of riches, namely material wealth, uh, above the more, much, much more uh, greater preciousness of the blood of Christ and the truth of the gospel. But I think you also see that in some of our churches today of a compromising of the word, a, a, a way to uh, think through the congregation, the people that could come in and say, you know what, this person may not like what I'm about to say. I'm going to skip over that piece or I'm going to change my message to accommodate that person. And we can grow our church that way. And so I suspect that there is a temptation and can be a temptation for the pastors to do that and pastors all over America to do that. And so I, I want to commend our pastors that they have not done that. They have been faithful to what the scripture says and faithfully proclaiming the word of God. And so we've seen that. We've seen people leave because of things that were preached from this pulpit or because of things that we obeyed like church discipline. And so I just, I, I want to commend our pastors that they have been faithful, even though uh, there has been suffering for it and we've gone through different iterations of the church because of it. But I believe that there is an inheritance in heaven and a treasure in heaven for for the pastors and the others that are involved that are staying true and staying faithful. And so I want to encourage you, and I also want to encourage the body to pray for the pastors that they wouldn't give in to temptation uh, and, and be tempted to peddle the word of God. All right, so going back to our passage, you can throw that back up on the screen. Uh, just wanted to comment on the getting richer and suffering one or the getting richer and resulting in poverty. And so this seems counterintuitive. So I, I want to I hit on it briefly. In the immediate sense, if I give money, I don't have it anymore. And if I keep my money or withhold it, even when there's need, well, I still have that money. So shouldn't I be richer then if I, enhold, if I withhold and, and uh, poorer if I give it away? But this goes back to the question, where are you storing your treasure? And what's more important here than where are you storing your treasure, but whom are you storing your treasure with? The generous person stores it in heaven. The withholding person stores it here on earth. But the guarantee of riches and want comes from the who. Who is collecting that treasure? And we see in the book of Proverbs that storing your treasure in heaven both honors the Lord and it lends to the Lord. It says in Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. It says in Proverbs 19.17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. There is no guarantee contemplated by man in the history of man in, in all of his creative imagination that will guarantee a surer repayment than us lending to the Lord and him saying that he will repay. That is the treasure that you have in heaven because it's stored with, with the Lord. So that's what I believe it means, that you will grow all the richer. There is sometimes a material blessing as well, but that's, as we see in 2 Corinthians, meant to get us to be more generous. And I have some examples at the end, if we have time, of, of some people that have done that faithfully. All right, now let's get into the practicality. How? How do we store riches in heaven? And so what I think this comes down to is a miraculous equation. So we're actually going to jump to the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. We're just going to hit on one verse because I think it illustrates this, this equation very well. 
says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the first part of the equation, faith. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. We need faith to be radically generous. My heart is inclined to keep my treasure here where I can see it, not in heaven where Christ is, and with a God that I can't see through the eyes of vision, but I can see through the lens of faith. See, Proverbs teaches us that there are many things that are greater than riches. Fear of the Lord, love, quiet, righteousness, lowly spirit, integrity, a good name, a good wife, wisdom. All these things are more valuable than riches. Seeing with the eyes of faith, we realize that these things cost nothing, yet are priceless. But if we have greedy eyes, and we're looking through that lens, and we're looking through the lens of the world and the vision, we're going to have our eyes consumed with material things that cost thing, that cost us our wealth, and yet don't last. Proverbs also teaches us that though riches can be good, they won't save you. And so it says in Proverbs 14, or sorry, Proverbs 11, 4, riches do not profit in the day of, of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. You will not be able to come before the throne of God and say, look at my bank account, how much I have. How much is it going to cost me to get in here? That will not work. Your opportunity is now. The, the inheritance that you can store in heaven, the treasure that you can store in heaven, you're enabled to do that by being generous today. And of course, I, I will note, not that that saves you, but it's an outflow of the faith that you have in Christ that results in a transformed heart of faith. Second part of the equation, joy. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him. We need joy to be radically generous. If your heart is like mine, it's difficult to be a cheerful giver, and we're submerged in a culture that pushes up against that. And so I'll prove that with a thought exercise. Uh, picture in your mind someone that just won the lottery. Or if, you, if you're like me, you grew up watching The Price is Right, someone that won a dishwasher or a car or vacation. You know, what's, what's, what do they do as a result? They win that thing. Yeah, they jump for joy. They're ecstatic. They're overwhelmed. In fact, if they weren't, they would probably be called out as ungrateful or odd. I want to contrast that with, again, going to Hebrews. This is Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, we give out of, out of joy because we know what lays before us. They were able to be joyful in the plundering of their property. See, with the eyes of faith, Jesus can fill our hearts with joy to give as we have hopeful guarantee of treasures in heaven. Then the third and final piece is sacrifice. So you have faith plus joy plus sacrifice. Jesus endured the cross despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, who is God, became man, gave up himself generously so that we could be unshackled from our sin and our debt. 
It says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you may become rich. See, through the eyes of faith and hearts filled with joy, we can sacrifice our treasures here on earth for the needy in God's kingdom, knowing that we are making an, inter- an eternal investment in heaven. I want to share with you three quick examples of people who have lived this out that I think give us some, some model to follow. And what's coincidental about these examples is they lived in different centuries. And so the first one, John Wesley lived in, in the 18th century, so the 1700s. And so he had a, a regular income that came from his lecturing in Oxford. And so he was so gripped by the passages about giving to the needy that he decided, you know, I'm making 30 pounds a year. I can live off 28 pounds. That's my expenses. And so I have two to give. And so the following year, his income doubled, but he kept his expenses the same. So now he had 32 pounds to give. And he continued to increase his income, but didn't increase his expenses. And so he was just giving all the surplus. And so at one point, he had over 1,400 pounds that he was given in a year and he lived off of the 28 pounds and so he gave away the rest and so if that sounds unbelievable then uh the english tax commission also thought it was and so they investigated him and they found out that it was true he really didn't have anything any possessions he was giving it all away a second example is george Mueller, uh who uh was a pastor, and and many of you maybe are familiar with the name. He lived by faith. He wanted to show people that God answers prayer. And so he had a a million and a half pounds passed through his hands. Uh, And he started numerous orphanages, sponsored countless missionaries. He never asked for money, but he trusted God and and prayed to God for what he needed. He ended his life with 100 pounds, mostly in furniture. So he wasn't storing up his wealth here on earth, but in heaven. Uh, and then the final example here is is Rachel Saint. Uh, and so she lived in the uh, early 1900s, uh, and I think she died in 1994. And she was, she was part of the group that launched the, um, the Ecuador Five. And so those, that was a group of missionaries that went to preach the gospel to the Incas, uh, tribal people that had never heard the gospel, and they were, they were extraordinarily vicious. And so uh, they killed the, those individuals that went there She's part of that group. But what I didn't know about her history is that she grew up poor. And uh, she was the only daughter out of, I think, eight or nine kids. And um, her father was a a stained glass maker or painter, so they didn't have a lot of food growing up. And at one point, uh, there was a wealthy woman who uh, took her on a trip to Europe and so enjoyed her company and said, you know what, I'm going to make you the heiress of my fortune uh, if you will be my companion for life. And so she declined because she didn't think that God's calling for her was to sip tea and, and enjoy that, that conversation, but instead she devoted herself to missionary work. And so a lot of her work was, was done in South, South America. Uh, and so she's an example of, of someone who had an opportunity for wealth. Of course, she could have had that and maybe given it, that could be another model, but she felt convicted to not go that path 
and to spur in that and instead devote her life towards missionary work. And so we all have before us today the question, where are we storing our treasure? And so are we going to store it here on earth or are we going to store it in heaven? And God has, has given us the model through Christ but more than that, he's empowered us through Christ to be generous. And so if we look with the eyes of faith, if we're overwhelmed with the joy that is set before us of eternity in heaven with him, then we're able to be sacrificial in our giving, giving more than out of our abundance, but giving out of what we have and, and maybe what, what now we have to go without because we're being generous unto the Lord. And may God give us that grace uh, and and. May God use us as a model at Restore. Uh, and maybe the chapter, I had the 1700s, the 1800s, and 1900s, maybe the, the 2000s will be somebody in this church who is willing to be sacrificial and give unto the Lord in abundance, trusting him in faith. May we go to God in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us this, this model and you give us the, the power of Christ to be able to, through faith, with joy, give sacrificially, Lord. May you encourage us today. May we walk this out. May we all reflect on, on how we're living it out. Uh, and may you touch us deeply that we can be filled, filled with your spirit on what we should do next, looking always and depending always on Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.